I'll read Matthew 4, verses 12 to 17. Now when he, that is Jesus, now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory, territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay, so in verse 12, we read, Now when Jesus heard that John, that is, John the Baptist, had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Now, it's worth noting here, as you're putting these Gospels together, it's worth noting that in the Gospels, uh, these events are not recorded for us in strictly chronological order. A chronological order is, of course, uh, the orderings of events in the in the time in which they occurred. For instance, day one, day two, day three, and so forth. Now, whilst there is certainly a progression in the order of these events recorded for us in the Gospels, hence they start around the, the time of the birth of Christ or at the beginning of his ministry, and they go all the, all the way to the cross and the resurrection. So there is certainly a progression of time, but it's not in strictly chronological order. You see, uh, what these writers would often do is they would group certain events together that have to do with the point the writer is making. Uh, This was common practice in the time period as we've been going back home through Exodus and Genesis uh, before. You see them do this also. And it's still common for people to do this today. I mean, to give you uh, an example just before we came, we watched the uh, uh, movie um, uh, Dunkirk, uh, me and my family, uh, which, of course, it's about at the beginning of World War Two, after France and the Dutch and Belgium armies all collapsed, uh, the British were left stranded on the beaches of Dunkirk in northern France. And so the whole film is about uh, the British troops trying to escape back to Britain in order to be able to fight the rest of the war. Well, towards the end of the film, there is a Spitfire, a British aeroplane. It runs out of fuel because rather than go back to Britain to refuel, the pilot chose to stay in the air over the beaches of Dunkirk in order to defend the British boats and bomber planes. Well, in the film, uh, the plane runs out of fuel and he saves the ship below it from, you know, and all the people on it from being killed there. And as it's gliding through the air, ready to make a crash landing after running out of emergency landing. And the next thing you see is all the ships back to Britain, the people getting on the trains, the papers the next day. Uh, and of course, that would have took some time for them all to get back. But then it pans back to the Spitfire running out of fuel and, and gliding down. You see, uh, you see there it was showing the effect of what he's done by that heroic action. He, 
You see, my point there is this is nothing strange that the Bible does this sometimes. It doesn't record in strictly chronological order. But, but when it's often useful to do so, God's inspired writers, they, they grouped events together um, and then they would pan back and, and things like that. And I point this out because if you're trying to fit all this together, uh, you're going to think, why is all this here? Why is this there? And so forth. But you see, at the previous verse in our text today, there's no direct connection in time, uh, is why I've, I've said that. Hence, it's reckoned by many, and they have good reasons when you compare the gospel accounts. It's reckoned by many that between verse 12 and 13 here, a year has passed. And so a point worth noting is that John the Baptist's ministry, we see him being arrested here, but his ministry only lasted for about 18 months. Think about that. John the Baptist's ministry, 18 months. Time is short. As our Lord said, walk while it's day. You know, if you get the chance to labor for the Lord, do it now. You know, when other Christians from other places ask me about the street evangelism in our church, uh, I often point out to them it's mostly done by uh, young singles or sometimes married couples who haven't had children yet. Because once they start getting married and having families and working full time, that opportunity to labor for the Lord in that way becomes near impossible. Now, that's just one of many examples uh, in which people serve the Lord, but as the proverbial saying goes, strike while the iron's up. You know, sometimes in the Christian life, there are, there are windows of opportunity that if missed, are missed forever. You know, sometimes a, a door opens, doesn't it? How many times do we see this? We see a door open to, to speak to someone. I, I don't mean, I mean, you can go and speak to anyone at any time, but I mean, it's like God has opened a door. The opportunity is there. This person will be receptive today. But then if you miss that, and it's gone. And so, when Jesus heard the news, verse 12, that John the Baptist had been arrested, Jesus withdrew into Galilee. So, Jesus, he was previously in Nazareth. Uh, Nazareth, we see in the next verse, where he grew up. And so on hearing of John's arrest, he departed to live in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. And so uh, Jesus moving here, moving place, in one sense we're told this had something to do with John the Baptist being arrested. That was uh, the, the occurrence of that event, John being arrested, moved Jesus to do this. But we also see in verse 14 that this was the fulfillment of prophecy. This was so that, verse 14 reads, what was spoken by the prophet, written some 700 years before, might be fulfilled. So Matthew, God's inspired writer here, he does this a lot, is highlighting that this was all as the fulfillment of prophecy, why this happened here. And that is long before Jesus was born into this world that he created, it was foretold in the Old Testament that God foretold that he would send a promised savior. He told us long before Jesus came what he would be like, what he would do, what would happen to him. This was all foretold beforehand that when God's promised savior, his Messiah finally came, uh, we could be sure he was the one. Uh, we could be sh sure to trust in everything in God's word. 
Because everything that God said would come to pass, did come to pass, you see. And also showing us that this salvation is all God's plan from start to finish. You see, none of this here is by accident. He has planned these events. He has written the script, so to speak, of what would happen long beforehand. And so this was the prophecy we are told in verse 15. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, uh, Galilee of the Gentiles. So even the place where Jesus would minister, it was all planned before God and foretold by the prophet some 700 years before here. Verse 16, the people dwelling, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light as dawn. So this is the prophecy here. The, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light as dawn. And so uh, this prophecy here. For those people in this region, verse 16, uh, this is why Christ would go there. To the, this is why Christ would go to this Gentile and uh, Jewish and Gentile mix uh, of an area, as it's called the Galilee of the Gentiles, because there were so many uh, there. So this was a despised area. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a, a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them, a light as dawn. And so, so what a place here to start Jesus' ministry. I mean, Jesus, as you read on it, he calls his first disciples and apostles here in this place. A place which is described as people dwelling or living in darkness. A, a, a region called a sh- the shadow of death. I mean, what a, a description of a place to call it, of great darkness. And to call it a region of the shadow of death. I mean, I'm sure if this description, I mean, if you, in the local news, someone local described it as as of the place where we live, would be offended. You know, it was in the news, the president of the United States, he called a third world country, uh, uh, not the best term, and people were offended. But imagine if it had used a description like this. But you see, this is the place where we live. You see, God is not primarily, God is not primarily concerned with the place here, but the people living there is what it describes, who are in darkness and the shadow of death. Uh, you, you see, brethren, darkness in scripture often describes people without the light of God, uh, without the true knowledge of him to guide their way. And are people ignorant of the true God and, and Christ and his gospel? And the shadow of death here, meaning those under the death sentence of hell, eternal death for their sin, are those dead in trespasses and sins, that is their spiritual state. But you see, the promise in this verse is not speaking so much of mankind in general who have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But rather, this promise of light for such people is for those who know themselves to be in this condition. 
You see, uh, those sitting in the region and shadow of death, it's really a description of men and women under the power of sin who, who feel themselves paralyzed and under condemnation before God. You see, uh, the promise of mercy here in this verse is for such people as these. The types of, it's for the types of people who seem beyond reach. I mean, these people, they're out of the way. They're away from Jerusalem. So it's as if they are out of reach. Nobody goes to this despised place. Well, for the people who seem so ignorant and unreachable, this is whom this promise is for. You see, God comes to such people. You see, let me put it like this. Uh, There was a time in the Apostle Paul's life, before his conversion, when he felt alive, he said, without the law of God. Now, Paul, in this time, he was a Pharisee. He knew the law of God in an intellectual sense. He, He was very actively religious, the Apostle Paul, before his conversion in this time. But he had no real sense of his sin. He, he had no real sense, Paul, in that time before his conversion, of what it truly meant to keep the law of God. He said of himself in this time, he said, as to the law, I'm blameless. If you was to ask this very religious person, if you was to ask this very zealous Paul before conversion, do you think it's possible to reach sinless perfection in this life? Saul of Tarsus would have replied, Just look at me, kid. As to the law, I am blameless. But then one day, Paul told us, the Spirit of God brought it home to him what it really meant to keep the law of God. When God made it real to him uh, through the command, you shall not covet. Now, of course, Paul would have been aware of that command long before this. He would have memorized it since his youth. But it was not real to him. It was just a command he'd learned in scripture. But then one day it hit him through that command. You shall not covet that even to do the sin in your imagination is to make you guilty before God. And the more he tried not to sin, the more he tried not to lust and not to covet, the more he said he found himself doing it. Showing Paul that he was not only guilty before God, but he was a slave to sin, completely under its power. And so the law of God that Paul previously thought was his ticket to eternal life when he thought he was doing a great job of keeping it because he didn't properly understand it. When he really came to understand what it meant to keep God's law, he knew it to be a death sentence to him. You know, I I remember myself when, when I came under great conviction prior to being saved. Beforehand, I had been going to a church for around six years. And I'd become very religious and active there. But if you was to talk to me about clear sin in the Bible that I was doing, I would have replied, everybody does that. I don't think it's that bad. You see, that, that was me on the throne. That, that was me playing God, deciding what is right and wrong. If you was to ask me in that time, will you go to heaven? I would have said, of course. I mean, how could God not accept a guy like me? I mean, I'm not Adolf Hitler. Now, in this time, I could talk very much intellectually. 
I could have debated things all day long. I, I was learning about like creation and evolution. I'd begun to learn all this stuff about Israel and all this conspiracy stuff. I, I had an intellectual faith, you see. And I love to debate, is what I'm saying. But then one day I was going through the Sermon on the Mount, which of course comes up in the next chapter, and God brought it home to me. What it really meant to keep the law of God before him. What was really required if we were to somehow be accepted by our own goodness. And so for the first time, I really saw my sin before God. For the first time, I really saw myself as a guilty, condemned sinner before God. And you see, that is when you could put me in this verse. That is when I became part of these people who knew themselves to be dwelling in darkness in the region of the shadow of death. You know, I remember feeling such conviction. I thought, surely the ground is going to open up and swallow me. You see, that is the type of darkness and death that is spoken of in this verse. It's, it's a darkness and, and feeling of death when a person's conscience has been awakened. And so you've seen your lostness. Not just you've seen that you're in trouble, but you've seen that you're utterly ruined. You've seen that you cannot do anything to save your own soul. All you can do is like Saul of Tarsus did in that time I mentioned is cry out, who can deliver me from this body of death? Well, you see that this is the type of person that Jesus came to save. He didn't come to save the righteous. He didn't come to, to those who already thought they had great light and don't think they are condemned. You know, this sermon is really hope for darkness, for those in darkness and despair, but how many don't come to the light because they don't see their condition? You see, the gospel message is no good for people in that state. If they learn it at all, they just learn to parrot it. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, those who know themselves to be lost. You know, when if someone came into this room now and, and pulled out a gun, or pulled out a, if someone came into this room and pulled out a needle, I should say, and came to you, uh, I mean, you, you'd probably pick up a, I mean, you may have slip of words there, you may pull out a gun, one of you, I don't know. <laughs> In Texas, they'd all be there. <laughs> But if, if a doctor came in and explained to you that you have a, a disease and this is the cure, then you'd be, you know, thanking. You know, when I, when I came over on the plane, I remember I was eating something and I thought, what is this? And it was a, a, like a gold fill-in that had come out. And so I was looking for a dentist. But when, when I was in, uh, in San Antonio, everywhere I, I mentioned that I was... I had a filling come out and I needed a dentist. They were all volunteering to sort my tooth out. And I'm like, no. <laughs> but you know what it's like if you're in pain and you're trying to get an emergency point appointment for the dentist. 
and they say, we can get you in this morning, you think good news, don't you? You you see, the gospel is good news to those who realize the state is what I'm saying. And you see, notice the words death, darkness. This promise is for those in death, darkness. You see, it doesn't matter how ruined you feel you are. There's not a level of despair you can go past where this promise of salvation in Christ cannot reach you. Because salvation is for such people. You know, perhaps some listening have heard of others being saved. and So you're thinking, why does God not save me? You're in despair. And you feel yourself to be in this region of the shadow of death. Well, if that's, for you, if that's where you are, then this promise is for you. God sent his son into the world to save such people as you. You see, what you must do is come to this great light. Who is Jesus? He said of himself, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness. And we're told here in verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, Repent. Think again. Turn. Uh, The kingdom of heaven here, meaning the kingdom of God. Uh, In the Hebrew mindset, uh, the word heaven meant three different things. Same word, different meaning. Uh, The first heaven being the sky where the birds fly. The second heaven where the stars are. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the third heaven... This is the place when we use heaven in English, but the place where, meaning the dwelling place of God. And so here, the kingdom of heaven, meaning the place where God dwells and rules. You see, uh, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, to be in a kingdom is to be under the reign and rule of a monarch. You can't be in the kingdom without having the king over you. You see, mankind was originally created in the kingdom of God in the garden, in Adam and Eve. But then mankind sinned and were put out of the kingdom of God. Satan came to them, didn't he? And said, you be your own God. You decide what is good and evil. You decide what is right and wrong. And you see, that is how mankind has lived ever since. And that is what it is to be alienated from God, under the judgment of sin. Well, God sent Jesus into the world to save such people who know themselves to be dwelling in this darkness in the region of death. And so Jesus tells them here, repent, reconsider, think again, turn back to me, he says. Come back under my reign and rule. Have me as your God, Jesus is saying to you. And notice, immediate repentance is demanded here. He doesn't go about preaching, do this tomorrow. No, because today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the time when you can be accepted and welcomed by God on the basis of what Christ has done for you. As it says further on, immediately when he called those apostles, immediately they left their nets and followed him. He doesn't tell you, go and do ten great things in order to be saved. He doesn't even tell you, go and do one great thing. But repent and believe Christ now. I mean, consider the name Jesus. 
That tells us much about the gospel. His name means Jehovah saves or the Lord is our savior. You see, this savior is deity. Uh, This savior is God himself. And so think, since the savior is God, think about this. It doesn't matter how much darkness you feel yourself to be dwelling in. It doesn't matter how much despair. It doesn't matter how much, how hopeless and beyond reach you, you see your position as. Because since this Savior Jesus is God, then it's of no difficulty for him to save you. As John the Baptist would preach, that Christ is the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Just as in that Old Testament picture, a lamb was sacrificed instead of the people as a substitute for them. And when God saw the blood, as judgment swept through Egypt that, last, that night, his judgment passed over them. Well, you see, that is how it is for all those who embrace this Jesus as their sacrificial lamb. For all those who will embrace Jesus as your substitute. And so see that he died in your place. And so the judgment of God will pass over you. Because God the Father sees the blood of Christ. He sees his sufferings on your behalf. And he sees them as sufficient to pay for that that sin. You see, because this gospel, because this way of salvation in Jesus is a, a free gift. You don't have to do anything to pay for it. Because Christ has already paid it all. Well, since it's a free gift, then there is no excuse not to receive it. And there's no excuse not to receive it right now. You don't have to wait until you have enough to pay. Listen. Don't try and sew up the filthy rags of your own righteousness. But you must rest in Christ as your Savior. See what he has done for you. I remember Charles Spurgeon, he he gives that wonderful example of the, the rank collector. Where there's a woman there. And she... She was in debt. She needed the money to pay the rent. And so she heard a knock at the door. And so she hid herself. And then later that day, she was in the church. And and the pastor said, I I, I came round before, but you you was out. And she said, oh, I I thought it was the rent collector, so I hid myself. And he said, no, I came. I knew you was in trouble, so I came with a gift so you could pay the rent. You see, that's what Christ has come to do. To pay the rent in full. So don't hide from him. Don't try and stay back until you can get enough money. But come without money. You see, it's not about you being good from now on. That's not what will save you. That's what will damn you if you trust in that, how good you are from now on. You see, if you try to stand before God in your own righteousness, if you try to be accepted before God on the basis of how good you can be, then you will always be weighed in the balance and found wanting. You will always fall short. But if you will believe Christ, if you'll rest in what he's done for you, then you can be given his perfect righteousness in a moment like that. You see, from the moment... 
you found you find salvation is all in him. Uh, you will be declared righteous before God and no longer under any con- condemnation once and forever. You see, in that moment where you embrace this salvation of Christ, uh, you'll be as righteous before God as you'll ever be. Why? Because it's, it's all based upon the merits of Christ and you can't improve upon that. You see, those who stand before God do so because they stand upon Christ's merits. And you see, that is the only way to be right before God. Uh, To turn to Jesus, to turn to this great light. Have him as your God. Follow him, follow the light of the world. No longer walk in darkness. But rise up, follow him. Believing, resting, trusting. Trusting that you're not partially right with God, but you are fully accepted by God once and forever. Not on the basis of how you, how well you do those things even. You see, it's not on the basis of how well you repent and believe. It's not on the basis of anything you do. But it's upon the basis of what Christ has done for you. That he paid for your sins, every single one of them upon that cross. If you'll repent and believe. In this great light. You see, you must cease from trusting in your own efforts. But if you will do that, if you will turn to Christ and trust him, then you will be saved. You'll be declared right before God in a moment, in a heartbeat. As God says earlier to these people, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. God the Father is pleased with everything that Christ did, including the payment he made. For our sins upon the cross. So if you will be pleased. With him too for what he's done there. Then you will be saved in a moment. So have Jesus as your God again. There's no one out of reach. Of this gospel. If you find yourself in a darkness unreachable. Well Christ comes to you today. And says follow me. Let's pray. Our Father, you have the words of eternal life. To where else can people go? There is no other name under heaven by which a man can be saved. But he who comes to you on this basis, you will by no means cast out. Not now, not at the judgment, not ever. I pray, Lord, that you would reach out and bring people into your kingdom through this word this day that they could follow you, be well saved. We ask these things in your name for your glory. Amen.